This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Today we're going to be hearing uh, a teaching from the book of Jonah in the Old Testament and this is starting off a series called The Rebel Prophet where we're going to be going through the book of Jonah. I don't know how you naturally feel about the Old Testament but I want to encourage you to be patient with it uh, and to be expectant that God will speak to you through it because it is God's word. And Jesus himself in John 5 says that all of scripture is about him. And so we can expect to learn more about our Savior Jesus as we read the book of Jonah. So I'm going to read all of Jonah chapter 1 today. So feel free to get out your Bibles or your devices, uh, but there'll also be a version on the screen behind me. We are reading from the NIV translation. And this is Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because, of its, wicked, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm rose upon that, that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where are you from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? They knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them that. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea come down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Good, good. I'm glad glad you're good. 
My name is Matt. If I have not met you before, I would love to meet you after the service. It is my wonderful privilege to be one of the pastors here at Anchor City uh, and partake and partner with God really in what He is doing in this church uh, in incredible ways. This morning, I want to start with a quick uh, budget update. Um, If you're new or visiting, the reason that we do this is to give you an update on where our finances are, where our giving is at each month, uh, as well as to provide you with transparency about how our money is spent. So uh, just so you're aware, we're not a part of a large denomination that funds what we're doing here with, with the church planting that's happening here at Anchor City. Everything that we do, including hiring this venue, employing our staff, the office in Balmain, all of the events and ministries that we run, they only happen because of the generosity of the people who call this church home. So uh, an update for this month. Um, so it's October now. I'm reporting on the month of September, so the previous month. Uh, and there should be a couple of slides that are coming up on the screen behind me. So for September, we had 51% of our church membership who gave in September. That means that there's 49% of our church family who didn't give last month. Uh, And we gave at around, if you include all the 160 adult members who call this this church, this um, Anchor City home, we gave it around $47 a month. Um, We uh, gave $36,408 last month, which is great. It's about $2,000 shy of where we need to be each month. So in order to meet budget, we're projecting giving needs of about $38,333 a month. So we're just $2,000 under where we need to be for the month. Now, there are three months this year where we have been able to hit those giving targets. And one month, we actually just blew it out of the water due to a very large one-off financial gift. But that's where we need to be. So we need to get our giving up around $2,000 a month in order to just meet budget. But on the, um, on the budgeting question, you can't, thankfully, you actually can't see those figures down there because I think they're wrong. Uh, but I th- uh, we, we need to do a bit more work this week to figure out where we're actually at with budget. But it looks like we're about $22,000, $23,000 behind budget so far this year. So what I want to encourage us as a church is to uh, be really generous in the last couple of months of this year. It'd be great to finish this year really strong. Traditionally, we have a slow summer period. Uh, and the last couple of years, if we're honest, have been really tough for, for all businesses, all organizations. Um, but we would love to finish the year in a better position than a significant budget deficit that we are looking at this year. This morning, um, I received a text message from a, a friend of mine. He's a, a business person. Um, often messages me to say that he's praying for our church and he had no idea I was due to give a budget update this morning but he sent me a verse from Exodus this morning and as I was thinking about uh, reminding our church of what it looks like to give the thing that constantly came back to my mind was deficit, 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 deficit. And I was like, that, that, who wants to get up and tell the church about deficit? And then I got this verse from Exodus, and it's the complete opposite. So I want to read this verse. It's a part of the story of Moses building the tabernacle and God's people responding to his call to supply the needs for the tabernacle to be built. And um, I want to read this verse this morning as a Uh, a story of inspiration for us to think about the part that we play 
in fueling the mission that God is doing here at our church. So this is what it says in Exodus chapter 36. So all the skilled workers who were all doing the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing all the work the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses gave the order and they sent his word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because they already had more than enough to do all the work. And I thought to myself, wouldn't that be a wonderful problem to have? To have more than enough to be able to execute the vision that we have here at Anchor City to do whatever it takes to bring the wayward home, to see disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples. Wouldn't it be amazing if I had to stand up and give a budget update, said, guys, stop, please. So um, maybe we would never say that. We would just keep, keep doing the things that God has put on our heart. But to, to be able to stand up and say, guys, we have more than enough. Not lack, not deficit, not insufficient. I would love to be able to change the narrative to say we have more than enough to do what we believe God has called us to do in this time in this part of the city. And so can I encourage you, those of you who are new, who have joined our church recently in the last few months, if you have not yet set up your giving, there is a giving booklet I want to encourage you to take home today. It'll be on the Connect desk. If it's not already there, James Eyre will make sure it's there for you to take home today. It has all of the, all of the information you need to know about giving here at Anchor. So if you're new You've recently joined us, you haven't set up your giving, then please uh, take that home this week. Prayerfully consider what your giving will look like here at Anchor Church. And if you are giving, uh, perhaps it's time for you to reconsider what it looks like for you to partner with us financially, generously, sacrificially, so that you can continue to fuel the work that God is doing here at Anchor. And I would love to be able to stand here and say, guys, we have more than enough to do what God has called us to do. So I'm going to pray to that end, and then we're going to jump into Jonah chapter 1, which I am very excited about. So please join me as I pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of abundance. That God, when you created this world, you do not create with stingy creativity. God, you created a vibrancy of colours and flavours and smells. You have created with abundance a, a beautiful, rich creation for us to enjoy. And I pray, God, that you would stir that same sense of abundance amongst your people, that we would be a people who believe so much in what you are doing in this church, in this part of the city, God, that we would so generously and sacrificially into this work so that we could look back and say, we have more than enough, God, to do what we believe that you have called this church to be, the type of people that you've called us to be in this part of the city. So God, please stir a spirit of generosity amongst your people. And we pray now, Lord, as we come to your word, God, we refuse to believe the lie that we are wiser than you. And so God, we pray that you would speak. And God, we know that when you speak, you often challenge and convict and demand change in our lives. And so this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, soften our consciences to what you have to say, show us the areas in our life that we are not walking in obedience, where we are running from your call. And I pray that you would transform us by your spirit into the likeness of Jesus. And we pray this for your glory 
and for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, Amen. Well, as Bree mentioned this morning, we are starting a new series called The Rebel Prophet. We're going to be walking through the book of Jonah over the next four weeks. And I really want to encourage you to read the entire narrative in one sitting. It won't take you much more than 20 minutes to sit down and read Jonah from beginning to end. It is a beautiful book. In fact, it is a literary masterpiece. The way this book has been written, the way it has been structured, it is incredible. It's beautiful. It's rich. It's hilariously funny. I want to encourage you to read it. In fact, if I can just give you a handle on how to read it. If you remember the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, right? The two sons of the father. The first son runs off to a distant country and lives rebelliously. The older son stays at home, but does the father's work begrudgingly. Now, Jonah actually mirrors both of those two characters. The first half of Jonah is him running from the father. The second half of Jonah is Jonah begrudgingly doing the father's work. Um, and so read this book, but read it understanding what type of book you are reading. What type of book is Jonah? What type of literature is it? The, the, the Old Testament is full of all sorts of different types of genres. There's poetry, there's history. Uh, there's prophecy. And as you read this book, it opens much like any other book of prophecy would open. You know, the word of the Lord came to, and then you insert the prophet's name. And so as you begin to listen to this book and read it, you think, all right, we're reading prophecy. But scholars are divided about this book, whether we are reading a book of historical narrative or whether we are reading what they call historical parable. Now, these aren't liberal scholars. These aren't scholars who have chosen not to believe in the Bible, who deny the miraculous. These are good Bible-believing people who have read this text and said, maybe we aren't reading history here. Maybe we are. So let me give you a, a parallel. If you remember in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 17, 18, I think there's, Jesus tells a story about Lazarus and the rich man. Right, Lazarus, presumably a character, a beggar, a poor man whom people were aware of and he inserts a real historical character into a parable to make a story. Now that may be what's happening here in Jonah. Now there is a lot of debate around this because everyone disagrees about the big giant fish in the book of Jonah. Right? You cannot read a children's book, a storybook Bible or anything without this story being dominated about the big giant fish. And everyone would read this, you know, from a Western secular mindset and go, no one can reasonably survive. Is there enough oxygen in the stomach of a fish to survive for three days? Like, of course not. So we, people will read this and deny this book as history. Now, that's not what I'm saying we do here. Perhaps the author has taken this story and inserted a real historical character into a parable to make a point. That, that's one way of reading this. Another way of reading this is that Jonah is a real historical figure and these events really happen. How do we know? One of the ways that we know is that in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 23, there is a reference to the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai. Right, so that here is, in a, in a clear historical narrative, a reference to Jonah. And Jonah is a prophet who prophesies favorably to one of Israel's 
most disobedient kings. Je- uh, Rehoboam, Jeroboam 1 and 2, terrible kings, terribly disobedient to God. In fact, set up temples and, and allow idol worship to happen in these temples. And Jonah prophesies favorably that the Lord will expand their boundaries. And then Amos later comes and reverses that prophecy. But here we have an historical figure. Then you get to the New Testament and Jesus will reference Jonah. In fact, he will say that as a word of judgment and condemnation against his current generation, he will say, in fact, the men of Nineveh will stand up and bear witness against this unbelieving generation. And so I think what we're reading here in Jonah is a real historical story. And if we have problems with a miracle like a giant fish swallowing Jonah and him surviving and this miraculous vine growing up and then this crazy worm that seems to eat the whole vine in one day. If we have problems with those types of miracles, then we're going to have a real problem when we get to the New Testament with a miracle like the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. So if we believe in a God who is powerful, who stands outside of creation, who created everything that we see, know and touch, then we have no problems with that God acting supernaturally in His created order to appoint a fish to swallow a prophet. And so what I think is happening here, and really it doesn't really matter what you believe, whether this is a historic parable or actual history itself, the point of Jonah is exactly the same. So who is Jonah? Jonah's name means dove. And son of Amatai means son of faithfulness or truth. Now, as you read that, if you were an Old Testament reader who knew your Bible, you would read that and kind of giggle because you knew who Jonah was, this prophet whom Israel probably didn't look favorably upon. He kind of prophesied the expansion of Israel um, at the expense of the nations around them. He was highly nationalistic. And so as you read of this faithful prophet, you kind of chuckle because you're like, really? I mean, is Jonah really the dove son of faithfulness? But we know that he was a prophet. And we know that um, as we read this book, that we think in the opening verses is a book of prophecy, what we begin to realize that in fact, when we read most prophetic narratives, it's about the message. Right? And so as you read Ezekiel, it's about the message that God gives Ezekiel. As you read Amos, it's about the message that God gives Amos. Here, the book of Jonah is not about the message. In fact, his message is five words in the original language. It's, it's a five-word message. Jonah is not about the message. Jonah is about the messenger. And here we see Jonah, a passionate Hebrew, a nationalist perhaps, not one of Israel's celebrated prophets having the spotlight shone on his character. Now, really, the book of Jonah actually is about you. I don't know if you realize that. The book of Jonah is about you. It's, it's meant to rattle us. It's full of themes of disobedience and divine discipline and direction. It's about God's sovereign control over all of creation and over all of the nations of the world. It's about race. It's about loving your enemies. It's about nationalistic boundaries. And the book of Jonah really is a spotlight to our own hearts. 
Now, as we read Jonah, what we realize is that this book is full of irony, satire, and comedy. Right? Everything in this book is great. Right? Nineveh is great. The boat is great. The fish is great. The vine is great. Everything is it's almost, you know, those comics that you like, editorial comics that you see in the newspaper, and the character's head is like significantly enlarged, right? That's kind of how I picture Jonah in this narrative. It's almost like a comic story, and it is hilariously funny. As you read this book and you hear the things coming out of Jonah's mouth, you're like, did he really say that? Right? It's funny, and we're meant to kind of laugh at it until we realize, oh, actually, that's me. And it's a way of making us look in the mirror, laughing at something that looks ridiculous, and then going, oh, it's kind of what comedians do. It's kind of what comedians do. They, they, they will pick something that's happening in culture and make you laugh at it. But then when you think about it for a second, you're like, oh, actually, that's pretty poor. That's, that's actually a bit of an indictment on our culture. So what we read here in Jonah is a brilliant masterpiece of comedy and satire. And everything is ridiculous and exaggerated And I hope you laugh at it as we read through this story. Jonah is about a rebellious prophet who runs from God's call. You know, a number of years ago, I was at Bible college training to be in partial ministry. And I had a season of really significantly doubting my call. I remember very vividly when I was 18 years old, I had just come to faith in Jesus Uh, maybe even 17, 18 years old, just come to faith in Jesus. And I remember reading my Bible in my bedroom, supposed to be studying for the HSC, but I did like four hour quiet times, you know. And, And here I am reading the scriptures and I remember having this profound sense that God wanted me to give all of my life to Him and to do that in the context of vocational ministry. And I don't think everyone has that call, but I certainly felt it as an 18 year old that for me, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus meant surrendering my life to Him to pursue ministry. And I was at Bible college in about 2004 and my soul was sick. I was spiritually dry. And I remember probably for the first time praying and saying, God, what do I do with my life? Like since that moment and when I was 18, I had just set my mind on this trajectory, almost without even asking God if that's the direction I should be heading in. And I remember having this crisis and I quit Bible college. I dropped out of Bible college. There you go. Your pastor is a Bible college dropout. Uh, Hey, I went back, I finished it off and now I'm doing my master's again. But I remember um, dropping out, going to university, studying a Bachelor of Exercise Science as a mature age student, thinking to myself, what am what am I doing here? All these kids want to go to the Greenwood and party on Thursday night and I just want to go to bed at 9.30 and I want to get a HD. And, um, and I remember um, Tash and I were planning to get married. We were engaged. We were praying for a job and the job that got offered to me, literally the day that my university degree was about to go on semester break was a job in ministry. I was like, oh, all right, I'll do this for six months. And, uh, and then at the end of that six months, the, the school I was working for said, hey, we would love to employ you full-time. And my pastor at the time came to say, hey, I would love to give you a part-time job, two ministry jobs that I was not looking for. And in a, 
in a moment of prayerfully discerning, I felt God say, well, Tash and I, we, we felt God saying, you need to go back into ministry. And it was kind of like a real Jonah moment for me because I, I, I vividly recall God saying when I was 18, you need to be a youth pastor. And I'd run from that call. Now, I don't think I was willfully disobedient, leave, dropping out of Bible college. I think that was the right thing. And I just needed to do a bit of a detour for a season and God had to work on some things in my heart. And I would have been a terrible pastor if I just kept on that course that I was going on. But really, the story of Jonah, I feel, has, has a mirror in my own life because I ran from this call that God had given me and it took God a bit of a roundabout circumstance to get me back on the path that I believe that He had called me to. And perhaps your story is very similar. And the thing I love about Jonah is that you know, the vision of our church is what? To do whatever it takes to bring the wayward home. Jonah is a wayward, rebellious prophet. And there is so much in this story that I feel like resonates with our church story and journey. So I cannot wait to dive into this book with you all over the next couple of weeks. So Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Let's go. You ready? Two of you are ready. Good. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, the dove, son of faithfulness. This is what God said. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship and boarded from that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. Why? To flee from the Lord. Now, I want to suggest to you that there is nothing ambiguous about God's command here to go. Right? It was pretty clear. When God said to Jonah, go, he gave him the when. Go has this sense of immediacy to it. He gave him the what. Here is the message you were to say. He gave him the why even, because their wickedness has been brought up before me. The only thing that God left up to Jonah's imagination was the how. Walk, run, sprint, crawl, cart, horse, donkey, who cares? You decide, go and go now. And this is the message. And this is where you are going. And this is why you are going. Like it, it's not like Jonah be, be like, ah, oh, I'm not really sure I'm hearing from the Lord. Perhaps I'm going to take a month of just discerning what God's saying to me. And then I'll act right now. God was really clear. Jonah, Go. And what does Jonah do? Jonah went in the opposite direction. He went in the opposite direction. He ran as far from God as he could get. So if you picture, you know, the geography, right? Here's, just, just work with me on this, right? Jonah's probably in Samaria at the time. Uh, Jerusalem, Samaria, that area, northern Israel. And so he's here. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go northeast. Is that that way for you guys? Northeast, right? So he's here, this way. Okay, right, let's swap hands, okay? So he's here, and God says, Jonah, I want you to go, I want you to go up here, northeast. Right? And Jonah goes, he's here, and he goes like this. He goes, he goes over here. goes over here. Like, um, that's not even an exaggeration, right? He literally goes to the edge of the known universe at the time. Right? God says, you can get to Nineveh by land. Just walk. 
as I was doing some research this week on my, you know, my atlas on my Bible app, uh, I think it's about 800 kilometres, right? I just got my pen lit and kind of got the thing and just measured it out. Don't quote me on the 800 k's thing, right? Northeast, Jonah decides to go two and a half thousand kilometres in the other direction. It's like going from Melbourne to the top of Australia. Literally, you cannot get any further than where Jonah is going. He is going as far as he can from where God told him to go. It would be the equivalent of saying, uh, you know, Matt, uh, go here. And in our vernacular, I went to Timbuktu. That's kind of what he's saying here. You went as far as you could possibly think to go in the opposite direction. Now, what is humorous about that? What, What do we find funny about the prophet of the Lord who ought to understand and know the word of God who seeks to flee from the presence of God? Like, do you think Jonah forgot about Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I get up really like before 9am in the morning, you know, like if I get up as soon as the sun is rising, you are there. If I settle on the far sides of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Can you see the picture of the prophet that Jonah is trying to paint for us? Here is Jonah. Son of faithfulness, the prophet of God, who flees and runs as far as he can when God tells him to go. See, Jonah's not like Moses, who when God said go, he's like, I've got a stutter. He's like, fine, he's Aaron, he can speak for you. It's not like Jeremiah, who's like, I'm young, I can't really speak all that good. He just straight up refuses. There's no negotiating with God here on the call, like, God, could you just maybe send me a little bit north? Like send me maybe to, you know, in fact, just send me to one of the other tribes. I'll go there. No negotiating. Jonah refuses and he runs in the opposite direction. Now, why does Jonah run? Why does he, why does he leg it all the way to Tarshish? Fear? Maybe. Maybe Jonah is afraid of what might happen to him as he turns up in the greatest city in the known world at the time, the empire that ruled the world with an iron fist. You know, Nineveh was known. It's one of the longest standing empires in history, I think. And I think they they kind of reigned for about 2,000 years, the Ninevites, and they ruled with brutality. So often the... um, the, the king of Nineveh would be quoted to say, you know, when these people rebelled against me, this is what I did. And he would tell in, in the annals of history what he did. It's like, I went to the leaders of the city and I skinned them alive in front of their people. In fact, they, we know that the Ninevites would often go to a village or a town. They would behead every male and build a pyramid with their skulls out the front of the city as a, as a way of saying, don't mess with us. That would be the PG version of what they're trying to say, right? Don't mess with us, right? Nineveh was brutal. And so God is sending Jonah into the heart of the most brutal, 
you know, civilization in the world to preach against them. And what, you know, what's Jonah thinking? I'm going to get there, preach the message, they're going to kill me. It would kind of like be the equivalent of saying, hey, um, go to Moscow and preach against Putin and his war in the Ukraine. Like, what do you think would happen if you did that right now? That's the mission that Jonah has received. So perhaps, yes, he is somewhat fearful of what might happen if he turns up in the city of Nineveh preaching a message of judgment. But in fact, that's not Jonah's reason. If you, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a spoiler here. We get to the end of Jonah chapter 4, and he tells us why he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go because he knew that God was slow to anger, abounding in love, and relenting from punishing those who were disobedient. Jonah doesn't want to go because he's fearful of ministry success, not failure. You see, in the heart of Jonah, he wants to draw this very firm boundary around the people of Israel and not allow anyone in. And so this commission, this sending does not fit with his vision for the nation, for his life as a prophet. And so he admits, the reason I ran is because I did not want to be your agent of blessing to the nations, God. In fact, my view of how this played out is better than yours. So I'm running. It is willful, outright disobedience. His vision for his life, his plan, his career outlook, his vision for his nation, all came crumbling down as God said, go to Nineveh and preach against that great city. Now, apart from being incredibly foolish to ignore God and ignore a clear command and a clear call, it's also costly. Have a look at what happens in verse 4. Then, jo- then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each one cried out to their own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. I just remember that, um, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean one where they like throw the rum. He's like, hey, not the rum. Anyway, I just get that picture. It's, you know, pirate. They may not have been pirates, let's be fair. The captain, uh, but Jonah had gone below the deck and when they lay down and f- he lay down and fell asleep in a deep sleep, the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. It's very clear. Everyone is aware that this type of storm is not a regular storm. There is something divine behind this storm. Who is responsible for this calamity? They cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. It's just like rolling dice. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? There is a great cost to running from God. Tim Keller in his book, um, I forget the name of his book. It may even be a rebel prophet. Maybe that's where we got the title from. He's written a book about Jonah. I really want to encourage you to read it. But he says this, every act of disobedience has a storm connected to it. Every act of disobedience has a storm connected to it. Now, what he's not saying 
is that every trial, every suffering, everything that's bad that happens in your life is God's direct punishment on you. He's not saying that. But he is saying that disobedience of God that happened in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rejecting God's clear command has a storm attached to it. The pattern of that plays out over and over and over again for the people of God. And that is true for Jonah here. Now, of course, yes, there is unjust suffering. Of course, yes, the guilty sometimes get away scot-free. Yes, we're not talking cause and effect here. But as a generalism, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Every act of disobedience has a storm attached to it. And in this case, it is really clear that the storm comes because of Jonah's disobedience. There's no ambiguity here. The Lord sent a great wind, but He has appointed this to happen. This is not like a natural disaster as a result of the brokenness of this world, right? This is an appointed wind, an appointed storm sent by God to slap Jonah in the face and to wake him up. And there is a cost. It has an impact, right? You know, you know the saying, everyone's in the same boat? I don't know if that comes from Jonah, but all of the innocent sailors, they're all in the same boat. They all are threatened by the storm that God sent to Jonah. And here is Jonah, the prophet of God amongst Gentile sailors. And we have this incredible irony that happens in the story here. There is an irony of obedience. And what the author of Jonah will do time and time again is he will use the construct of, uh, are the, the, the tool of contrast. He will contrast Jonah and something else. He will contrast Jonah, his attitude, his heart with the vine and with his heart for Nineveh. And here he contrasts Jonah, the holy prophet of God, with the pagan sailors. When they ask Jonah, where are you from? What is your land? What is your country? Who are your people? He says... I am a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, like as you read that, you think, do you really worship Yahweh, Jonah? Like what, what does worship mean for you? If you say, hey, I worship Yahweh, the God who created everything, the one who's in control of all things, I worship Him. But for me, worship looks like charting my own course in life and doing things my way, not his way. Do you really worship Yahweh Jonah? And here, the sailors. I mean, you know, sailors probably don't have the best reputation. You read this, you think pirates. Maybe it's not an unfair association in the story. But, you know, traditionally, sailors, they don't have a reputation for being the world's most moral type of people. Right? It's a rough and ready job. And here, the author of Jonah pictures these pagan sailors as people who ask forgiveness to God for throwing Jonah overboard, people who fear the Lord, people who make sacrifices. You know, most people will pray to God in the midst of a storm, right? God, please save us from the storm, right? And then when the storm is over, sweet, thanks God, we're on our way. Now here, after the storm has gone and the seas have settled, they make vows to the Lord and they sacrifice to Him. There is a genuine heart of softness and openness to Yahweh here. 
by these sailors. And you contrast that to Jonah, the holy prophet of God, who is walking in disobedience. I am a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh. And it's meant to make us kind of giggle at Jonah's words because it's comical. He's got a giant bobblehead that makes him look like a caricature of a prophet because he is. Now the captain of the ship, he finds Jonah sleeping down below deck and you think, man, that's so similar to Jesus in his storm, sleeping on the deck, perhaps for different reasons. Uh, And he says to him, arise, call on your God. And what does Jonah do? Does he come above deck and pray? God of heavens, God who created the land and the sea, God who is in control of this storm, I repent of my wickedness. Would you please relent from sending disaster upon this boat? Jonah doesn't do that. He just comes up and brags about his nationality, who he is, who he worships, and doesn't say anything, doesn't pray at all. Here is the prophet who has been sent by God. God literally said to him, arise and go. And here the captain of this ship, using the exact same words of God, says to Jonah, arise and call on your God. Isn't that funny? That the pagan, ruthless, brutal, sinful sailing captain is the mouthpiece of God to the prophet. We're meant to see the irony here of Jonah's I worship Yahweh. Time and time again, the author of this book will show us the comical character of Jonah in contrast to the Gentiles whom he is supposed to preach judgment to. So the sailors pick up Jonah. They throw him into the sea as an act of sacrifice. You think, you know, like maybe Jonah says, oh, look, if you throw, this is clearly my fault, guys. It's my fault. If you throw me into the sea, the the storm will stop. And they do everything in their power to keep rowing again. It gets to the point where it's pointless. They throw him in. Now, is that an act of willing self-sacrifice? Like Jonah's like, oh man, I just feel so bad for these guys. Like I would be willing to die to save them. What a beautiful picture of sacrifice. Maybe, but perhaps this is actually the height of Jonah's selfishness. He's like, well, if God's going to come against me in a storm and, send, and, and ruin these plans to run, then I may as well die. So throw me overboard, fellas because it's pointless to be used. I would rather die than to be used by God as a mouthpiece for the salvation of the nations. And I think perhaps it's the latter. I think this is the height of Jonah's selfishness. But they throw him in and they leave him, presumably treading water, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, somewhere below Turkey, somewhere, probably. Just left there. How long do you reckon you could tread water? There's no flares, there's no coast guard, there's no like, you know, the sailors can't, you know, send an SOS out to the Turkey coast guard and send them out in a helicopter. And None of that. Jonah is just treading water, presumably for hours until the point that he begins to go under. If you picture the movie, you know, like Jonah, the movie, the camera, the cameraman is in the water with Jonah, right? And you can see the, the water line sort of, bobbing over the camera line and Jonah's head going under and it's all dark and stormy. And it's like, it's that scene. And Jonah begins to sink to his watery grave. 
the prophet of God drowned in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean. But God had other plans. Because every act, if every act of disobedience also has a storm connected to it, then I want to add, if you're allowed to add to Tim Keller, I want to add that God also gives the opportunity to experience his mercy. Have a look at verse 17. Now the Lord provided. So God sent a giant storm. The Lord provided a huge fish, not a whale. We're not told it's a whale. So all of the kids' books that have Jonah and the whale written on it, Slightly presumptive. It may not have been a whale. We don't know. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. At the very heart of the story of Jonah, what what God is screaming through this narrative is, I am merciful. The mercy and grace of God is on display. And we will see this this rich contrast between people's softness towards God's grace and mercy. But you know, the, the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is not, you are disobeying God, now stop disobeying and start obeying and then God will love you. That, that is not the message of Jonah. That is not the message of Christianity. If you are facing away from God, you must turn around and come back to God. Yes, that is true. But not in our own effort, because that is impossible by ourselves. In fact, there was another prophet that came, a prophet that walked in perfect obedience to the commands and call of God, and his name was Jesus. And Jesus lived the the life of obedience, a life that you and I could not possibly live ourselves. And then he died a sinner's death, the death that you and I deserved on our behalf, in our place. And he gifts us his obedience and says, this is yours. Now walk in that. If I was to preach this story and just leave it as you're disobeying God, stop disobeying and do the right thing. That's not the gospel. That's moralism. That's self-effort. That is not the message of Jonah. The heart of the message of Jonah is a God who is gracious and merciful and meets our mistakes, yes, with storms, but also with grace and mercy. And in Jonah's case, the mercy of a giant fish that spares him from a watery grave. I wonder as we consider our lives in light of what Jesus has done for us, Where are we at? Do we find corners of our heart, corners of our life where we know what God said? We know what he's told us to do, but we're fleeing for Tarshish. We know what the call of God is, but right there next to that call, there is a boat that takes us in the opposite direction. There's not a person in this room, a disciple of Jesus, who does not have a part of their life that's disobedient, that chooses to say, I believe my vision for my life is better than God's. All of us have that. Every single one of us. God says it really, really clearly. And we're like, yeah, I think I prefer my version. 
know, there are always two competing visions for your life. Your vision and God's vision. And I promise you God's vision is way better. You see, Jonah thinks he's actually running for his life. He's running from Nineveh. He's running away from death. He's actually, sorry, he's running for his, from, from his life, for his life. That's it. He's running for his life. In fact, he's running from it because life is found in obedience to the commands and call of God. But let's be real for a second. God, God asks Jonah to do something that's really hard. And we can read that as, you know, 21st century Western millennial young people and think, man, what a harsh God. What kind of a God would make you do something hard? Because what we have done in the 21st century is fabricated this therapeutic God, the God of our own imagination that would never ask us to do something hard, would never ask us to do something costly. And that simply is not the God that we find in the pages of the scriptures. Yes, God calls Jonah to do something hard. It's difficult. It's costly. It's what obedience looks like. You know, if sin was never enticing and appealing, we would never do it. The reason we do it is because it has a tug on our hearts. We find it enjoyable. We find it appealing. And obedience to God is often difficult and hard and painful. I wonder if you're running this morning. I wonder where your Tarshish is, where you're heading to. The place that has captivated your attention and your mind over and above the call of God on your life. And this morning, I want to remind you that we have an obedient prophet who walked ahead of us. And his life, death, resurrection, his three days in the grave and his rising to new life gifts us his perfect obedience for us to walk in. And by the power of the Spirit, we can not perfectly, not at, at least not yet, but we can. And I'm promising you that life is not found in running from God's call. Life is found in obedience to God's Word, to His clear commands. And His vision for our life is way better than any vision that we could possibly imagine. And so today I want to call you back to obedience to God. And maybe that obedience is hard and difficult and costly. Yes. But that doesn't mean it's not good. That does not mean that God's plan for our lives and the things that He calls us to are not good, that they don't lead to flourishing. God is a good God and He has a plan for us. And I want to say that there are many of you in this church who that's been your story. You, you've come back to Anchor after years in the wilderness running from God. That was my story. Grew up in the church and I, I, my Tarshish was partying from 11 to the age of 18, 12 to the age of 18, running. My Tarshish was the acceptance and approval of my friendship group. And I want this church to be the type of church where those who are running from God can come and find home and grace and encounter the mercy of God. And not just a pat on the back, say, you're good enough. None of us are good enough. 
God has made a way for us to be radically transformed. I want us to be the type of church where the wayward, the spiritual battler, the prodigal can find the mercy, grace, and healing good news of Jesus. And so wherever you're at this morning, if you would say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I, and I know there are areas of my life where I am running from God this morning, come back. And maybe you wouldn't say, I, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but this morning you feel the pull and tug of God on your heart to return to Him. And I encourage you to come home and meet the Father who runs to meet us with open arms and not the, not the, the, the frown of judgment, but the embrace of mercy. As we transition, as the band comes up and as we transition to Lord's Supper, what I want to do is lead us in a time of corporate confession to, to give us a moment to just do business with God now, to pause, to reflect on your life, to think about the things that you know God is telling you to do, but you just refuse. And to, today, to repent of those things, to bring them to the healing grace of Jesus. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give us a moment of pause to confess, just do business with God this morning. And then I'm going to transition to Lord's Supper. So I invite us to stand to church. With every eye closed, head bowed this morning, let's, let's spend a moment in the presence of God, knowing that you can never outrun God's gaze. He sees you this morning, every single one of us. He sees us. There is nothing that we hide from God. There is nowhere we can flee from His presence. God, we know that there are parts of our our life where for us at least it feels too difficult, too costly, too hard to walk in obedience. And this morning, God, we want to bring those things before you and bring them to the foot of the cross and confess, God, that we have chosen our own way, that we have run in the opposite direction, that we have been willfully creatively at times, disobedient. God, we want to bring those things to you now. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you receive us with the open arms with an embrace of love. God, we want to turn from our foolishness. We refuse to believe the lie, Lord, that we are wiser than you. You know best. So God, by the power of your Spirit, would you help us to live lives that are obedient, transformed like Jesus. I want to pray for any person in this room this morning who wants to stop running from you for the first time, recognizing that their entire life, they've rejected you and today want to come home. If that's you, I want to give you a moment to just say to God, thank you, God, that you have forgiven me. I turn from my life of sin. I 
want to give my life to you and walk in your ways. Father God, we thank you that your grace is enough. That no matter how far we run, no matter how far we've got, no matter how bad we perceive our lives to be, your grace is sufficient. There is no mess that you cannot restore. I pray that your grace and mercy would be fresh for every person in this room this morning and I ask it in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, Amen.